Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to discuss burn anesthesia. Burn anesthesia is something that a lot of students may not get the chance to do during their anesthesia clinical time, just simply because there are not as many burn centers as you would think uh, in the United States. So I was looking at a map of the amount of burn centers that there are, and there are several states that don't even have one. Some states that only have a few, and there's, there's a, a long list of set of criteria that different hospitals need to have in order to be considered a quote-unquote burn center, and patients then will get flown in from all over the place to these burn centers. But just keep that in mind that this is not necessarily a case that everybody's going to see, uh, but we want to go through and talk about how we're going to manage these patients, what's the pathophys that'll be going on here that makes them so hemodynamically unstable and what we can do differently for our anesthetic plan to adequately care for these patients. The first thing that I want to talk about today is the physiology behind uh, burn injury. The first 48 hours are going to be very critical. There's a lot of risk for fluid shifts and fluid loss here with burn injuries. You're going to have an increased capillary membrane permeability. This is similar to think of a sepsis picture where you have more permeability in your capillary beds. This is similar because we're talking about the glycocalyx here. If you remember from our fluids discussion where we talked about the different barriers between the different fluid compartments, the glycocalyx is going to be a really important membrane that is going to govern basically the fluid moving in and out of our capillary beds. What's important here is that when this becomes more permeable, this is going to allow different substances to move out of the glycocalyx, out of the vasculature than normally would. And this is where you're going to have your fluid shifts. You're going to have your change in pressures, your osmotic pressure, namely. And so this is going to be something that is very important and it's going to play a very big role in how we manage these patients. Other things that are going to be altered in the patients with burn injuries will be a lot of mediators will be released. So you'll have bradykinin, histamine, thromboxane, interleukin, nitric oxide. You can imagine this is all going to play in part again with that glycocalyx. And so you'll have a very permeable membrane. So you'll have proteins that are leaking out. There's going to be fluid that are going to follow the proteins. You have electrolyte shifts. You'll also have a great deal of vasodilation because of these mediators. This will make the patient, like I mentioned before, lose that oncotic pressure in the vascular space. And so you'll have a lot of that fluid that will leak out of the vessels and into the interstitial space. This is a problem because the patient will become very edematous. This can have issues with compartment syndrome. This can have issues with airway. As I just mentioned, you can have risk of compartment syndrome. This is mostly due to the fact that that burn tissue will lose the ability to stretch or basically comply with that added fluid. So this is where you can start to see that compartment syndrome picture. Right. And so it's important to note that really from what I'm seeing, it's the release of these systemic mediators Tanner talked about, like the bradykinin, the histamine, thromboxane, et cetera, that really causes this altered glycocalyx and then all these things to have happen. And one of the things that we're really concerned about from our standpoint of anesthesia is getting an airway in these people. And there's going to be some difficulty in ventilating patients one, simply due to the maybe pulmonary edema due to fluid leaking out into the lungs, basically due to the fact that if all the protein is leaked out through the glycocalyx systemically, 
then there's that lack of oncotic pressure holding the fluid in the vascular space. So if all the protein's gone, there's nothing to hold that fluid there, and it'll just leak into the lungs and cause pulmonary edema. Secondly, the fluid leaking around the thoracic cavity in that third space really kind of compresses the ability of the lungs to expand. And eventually here with these things working together, we're going to have an ARDS-like picture develop, and the patient is going to be more at risk of bronchospasms as well uh, after the burn. So just keep in mind here, you're going to be developing an ARDS picture depending on how far along this process you are taking care of a patient in surgery, whether it be in the first several hours or days, just know that they're going to be developing this ARDS-like picture. Typically, they need to perform escherotomies, which are going to be used to help alleviate compartment syndrome and also help with the ventilating difficulties as well. The other thing to keep in mind is that fluid is able to leak straight out of burn sites and out of the body at some places. So not only is the fluid going to be moving into the third space or interstitial space, fluid will also be just leaking out of the patient in general. And so fluid resuscitation is vital during this period because all the fluid is no longer in that vascular space. The Parkland formula describes how we should replace fluid based on a formula that you take 4 mLs times the percentage of the total body surface area of burn times the body weight in kilograms. So I'm going to go into how you calculate the total body surface area of the burn in a second here. But once you know that, you take the percentage of your body surface area of the burn, times that by four, and then times that by the kilograms of the patient. Whatever this equals out to be, let's say it's 1,000, the goal is to replace half of that total number of fluid in the first eight hours. So I'd replace 500 in the first eight hours, and the second half would be over the next 16 hours. Now, obviously, we're not going to be in surgery for this whole period, but this is just getting the picture of how these patients are going to be treated. And you'll be aware then whether they're coming to the operating room at their 10 hour after the burn mark, at the 15 hour mark after the burn, up to the 32 hour mark, you'll know how they've been treated. So just keep in mind that a lot of this, what we're talking about is not necessarily what we'll be doing during the surgery, but it gives us a better picture of how to take care of these patients and where they're going to be in their treatment. So in order to calculate that burn surface area, one thing that I found very helpful is, is to use uh, this estimated form called the rule of nines. What this is, is it takes the body into different groupings and gives them a rough percentage of the total body surface area. So for example, both the front and the back of the torso are each 18%. The front and the back of each leg is 9%. Each whole arm is 9% and the whole head is 9%. Based on where the burn is at, let's say it's on the right side of the patient and their entire arm and then right leg is burnt, you would take the front and the back of the right leg, which is 9% and then 9%, and then the whole right arm is 9%, so that would be 27% of the patient's body surface area is in the burn. And you would take that times your 4 milliliters and then times the kilograms to calculate that total fluid. Right. And it's important to understand how our body is going to compensate for this burn injury. As far as the cardiac system goes, you'll see tachycardia mainly because of the body trying to maintain that blood pressure. Again, we have massive fluid shifts. And so the heart is going to have to be quicker with a less volume to try to maintain perfusion. The renal system, you're going to see oliguria. You'll see a decreased amount of renal blood flow. Again, you have less volume you'll have a decreased GFR. And you can also see myoglobinuria just because of that muscle breakdown 
you will see shifts with hormones. This is mainly to try to maintain a blood pressure so you can see increase in your ADH secretion as well as aldosterone, cortisol levels. So you'll see that renin system up and active, trying again just to maintain that blood pressure. These patients are going to be very at risk for hypothermia because they're going to be at great risk for heat loss due to all of that fluid loss and then just from the burns losing heat through the actual skin there. It's important to think about what we call the hypermetabolic phase. This can happen 48 hours post-burn or even several days after, uh, even up to a week after the initial injury. These patients will often come to surgery during this time for the debridement of their wounds. This is something that we are going to need to be very aware of as we manage these patients intraoperatively. From a cardiac standpoint, they still will most likely be tachycardic. You'll have an increased SVO2 just due to a decrease in oxygen uptake by the tissues. You may see a decreased SVR. Often they have a left ventricular dysfunction, which can cause backup of blood into the pulmonary system. And so you can already have some pulmonary edema simply from what Cole was mentioning earlier with the fluid shifts and a ARDS type picture. This can be worsened by that left ventricular dysfunction. You need to pay close attention to this. These patients can quickly turn into a pneumonia picture. And so you could have some underlying disease there with even just the fluid that's in the lungs. These patients are going to have an increased metabolic rate. So what does that mean? That means they're going to need more oxygen. They're going to produce more CO2. You'll see an increase in your renal blood flow and your GFR. This is different than right after an injury where you can potentially see a decrease in your blood flow GFR. The kidney still may have decreased tubular function though. So even though they have better blood flow, the actual tubular function of excreting and absorbing electrolytes and things can be decreased. These patients are more risk for anemia. They can have altered liver function. So you could have decreased albumin production. This is bad because like we mentioned, the glycocalyx is going to be more permeable to proteins, namely albumin. So if you already have a problem with your oncotic pressure, now if our liver isn't producing the same amount of albumin, this is just going to be insult to injury as far as the amount of proteins and the oncotic pull there in the intravascular space. Insulin resistance can develop as the patient becomes more hyperglycemic. This has shown that enteral feedings that are started really early on can improve the sepsis status. It can reduce the amount of people that actually have resistance to insulin and can also protect against burning through too much of the calories from the patient in that hypermetabolic state. This isn't something that we will necessarily start realistically, intraoperatively. But it's something to keep in mind, you know, is that patient already started on these enteral feedings? How are we going to manage their insulin? How are we going to manage their blood sugar, things like that intraoperatively? So it is something important that you are at least aware of so that you can manage them appropriately intraoperatively. The CRNA team at Memorial Health is growing. Our team performs more than 30,000 surgeries annually and offers a variety of cases from general, OB, GI, ortho, cardiac, vascular, and more. Memorial has a 24-7 OR with flexible scheduling in 8, 10, or 12-hour shift options. Our CRNAs receive PTO and sick time alongside competitive salaries, relocation assistance, and a sign-on bonus of up to $250,000. We hire CRNAs as early as their second year in school and can offer financial assistance to complete your program. 
Learn for yourself why Memorial means more. Text CRNA to 217-588-5627 to speak with a recruiter. So now let's talk about the anesthetic plan when we're going to take care of burn patients. As Tanner alluded to, typically we're going to be doing the debridement cases on these burn patients during that hypermetabolic phase. So after that 48 hours post-burn, unless there is something traumatic that we're doing on the patient that is emergent in that early hours after the burn. So for the most part, just think to yourself here that we're going to be in this hypermetabolic state when we're doing these cases. And so the goal of these cases when we're going to be doing the debridement is to excise that burnt or necrotic tissue and to allow and stimulate the new growth of tissue by either doing grafting, et cetera. So those are the kind of things that we're going to be doing here. You have to first assess if the patients need an airway securement. So this will be more in the lines of if you're getting the patient right after the few hours of the burn, you're doing something emergent on them and you need to see, do we need to get their airway secured? If it's going to be later in that post 48 hour period, typically they're going to be coming from the ICU. They'll probably already have an ET tube. Uh, but keep in mind, if they don't, you need to assess for hoarseness, strider, dysphagia, uh, those are big key signs that you need to put an ET tube in right away. If the burn is on the systemic part of the body, it doesn't change much with our masking and intubation techniques. However, if the burn is going to be on the face, that's going to really change how we're going to be able to do our induction and get the patient intubated. First of all, how is that burn going to affect your masking ability? So this is something you need to be assessing with the, when you take a look at the patient what is the burn on the face? Is it going to be hard to mask that patient? Are you going to have difficulties once you put the ET tube in securing that ET tube to the face? If their cheeks are completely burnt, you're not going to be able to put tape across and hold that tube down, especially because they're going to be working in this area as well. So these are things you need to be thinking about and making a plan prior to inducing this patient, depending on what kind of burn they have on their face. Additionally, if you think you're going to have a difficult airway, so let's say they burnt most of that area of the face and the oral pharynx and then the trachea, they have an inhalational injury, and you're concerned about the patient being a difficult intubation, you may either A, want to do a fiber optic intubation or a video laryngoscopy rather than doing a simple DL, just because we want to make sure that we can actually get this patient intubated, especially if it is in a more traumatic and emergent situation. If there is an inhalational injury, you're going to be noticing this by either singed facial or nasal hair. They might be hypoxic. You're going to see, again, burns on their face. You want to be careful for carbon monoxide poisoning in these patients. Carbon monoxide, you remember from our monitoring talk with SpO2 monitoring, the carbon monoxide will bind to hemoglobin at 250 times the affinity compared to oxygen. Typically, it takes about four hours to remove this from the blood. But if you put the patient on 100% oxygen, it'll actually be removed at a little under two hours. So ideally, you want to get these patients on 100% oxygen right away. But you need to be careful here because carbon monoxide, if you remember from our previous talk, binds to hemoglobin and picks up on the SpO2 monitor the same as oxyhemoglobin. So don't be fooled if you have a high pulse saturating in an inhalational injured patient that you suspect carbon monoxide poisoning just because it'll read the same as oxygen bound to the hemoglobin and you'll think you have a high 90s or 100 SpO2 reading when actually you don't. Another interesting sign to look for to 
be aware if they have carbon monoxide poisoning is these patients will look very red often. So their skin will be just this very red appearance. On the other side, you can have cyanide poisoning, and this can be caused from being in a closed space to the burn. The cyanide prevents cells from doing aerobic respiration. So all the way back in our anatomy classes and physiology classes, if you remember when the cells receive glucose, they then break that down into different substrates that go through this cascade of events and end up going to the electron transport chain. And the electron transport chain and the mitochondria of these cells will end up putting their electrons on the oxygen molecules. And if the patient doesn't have the oxygen molecules, it can't go through this process to do aerobic respiration. And so instead, the cell uses a different way to break down its sugar and make ATP, and it's called anaerobic respiration for not having that oxygen. Well, the result of anaerobic respiration is going to be making lactic acid. And when patients then make a lot of lactic acid, we turn into lactic acidosis. So these patients with cyanide poisoning, it, it prevents the aerobic respiration in these mitochondria of the cells. And as a result, we make a lot of this lactic acidosis. And that's obviously not a good picture for the patient. One way to treat this is to either give amyl nitrate or sodium nitrate. So kind of piggybacking off of that, let's talk about ventilation and some concerns that you may have or that you may run into as you think about ventilating these patients. So remember, you may have an underlying ARDS picture. Most will be on steroids from up in the ICU. So you will probably give a low dose just to correct that adrenal insufficiency during surgery. This will also help decrease that capillary leak and inflammation. Your tidal volumes, you're going to want to keep them about six mils per kilo for their ideal body weight. You want higher PEEP rather than a higher FiO2 just to maintain their SAS if they're lower. Again, this is going to be kind of in line with how we're managing a typical ARDS patient. Plateau pressures, you're going to want to keep under 30. You're going to adjust your minute ventilation. You're going to want to increase that to keep the CO2 normal. It's going to typically be higher just due to this hypermetabolic state. Most likely, these patients are going to have airway edema. As you think about emergence, you want to be sure and do your air leak test to be sure that you have air moving around the cuff before you would extubate these patients. As far as monitoring goes, if the patient has a burn injury on the chest, then you will need to possibly staple the EKG patches to the patient. Hopefully, you're going to be able to find areas on the skin that you'll be able to attach those monitors. But keep this in mind that you may have to do some pretty extraordinary or different techniques just so you can have proper monitoring of the patient. As with any unstable patient, an art line may be really beneficial here. You can lose lots of fluid, lots of blood during these cases. And so having a quick and current blood pressure could be very, very valuable. In these cases, like I just said, you can lose a lot of fluid and blood super quickly. These are very, very dynamic cases. And so it's really important that you are continuously monitoring the patient and be ready to address complications as they arise. You can also look at the pulse pressure or the stroke volume variation. This is going to be a really helpful indicator as you try to identify their fluid level. If you have high variation, obviously this is going to tell you that you're hypovolemic and you can treat there with crystalloids or colloids. One more thing to touch on, we've already talked about how this inflammatory response will cause this hypermetabolic state. One part of that that you really need to understand is the hypothalamus will actually increase the set core temperature of the patient. 
These patients will be working harder to reach that core temperature. The problem is that they have so much heat loss with the burn injury. It's going to be very important that intraoperatively we take every opportunity to increase their temperature for them and just protect them from potential hypothermia. So you're going to want to increase the temp in the OR even to around 80 degrees. You'll want to use your fluid warmers. You can use your forced air warmers like your bear hugger. You'll want to keep the patient as covered as possible just to eliminate any ambient heat loss there. So this is something that is going to, again, tie back in with their hypermetabolic state and their work of trying to increase their temperature. So if we can manage that from our standpoint, that is overall going to help the management of your patient. In terms of medications that we need to be considering, keep in mind that albumin is going to be decreased in these patients. So any medications that we have that bind to albumin will actually now be in higher free fraction that can do its job. So we're going to need less dose of those medications because less of it will be bound to that albumin. On the flip side, alpha-1 acid glycoprotein is going to be increased. So this will increase the amount of protein binding from the medications that bind to this. So an example of this would be lidocaine. Lidocaine binds to alpha-1 acid like a protein. So this will reduce the free fraction of the drug. So if I give typically a 70 kilogram patient, let's say I give 70 milligrams on induction, a one per, well, less of it is going to actually be doing the job I want it to do. So I will have to give a higher dose in these patients. So if you remember from our neuromuscular junction talk, we talked about how there are these fetal acetylcholine nicotinic receptors that when they are bound to, they release more potassium out of the cell and can cause more issues throughout the body due to that high potassium level. So with this in mind, during the first 24 to 48 hours after burn, these receptors haven't started to upregulate enough yet to be considered a high-risk issue. So we can still use depolarizing muscle relaxants such as succinylcholine. After the 48-hour mark, though, at this point, we need to assume that there's an upregulation of these nicotinic receptors at those muscles, which will then increase our risk of having hyperkalemia when we bind depolarizing muscle relaxants such as succinylcholine to those sites. So as a result, you're going to have more potassium going out throughout the rest of the body, and we can start to have arrhythmias that develop. So we want to avoid at all costs succinylcholine in burn patients really for up to about two years after burns. And this is more so with the bigger burns. If you have a patient that burnt just two of their fingers, this may not be a, a big enough burn surface area to limit the use of succinylcholine for the next two years of that patient's life. But really, if we're talking these bigger surface area burns, you really need to be avoiding succinylcholine if you're doing a surgery after 48 hours. Depending on when we're doing the surgery, whether it's during that initial 48-hour period when they're in that shock phase, you might also hear this referred to as the ebb shock phase, EBB, versus the hypermetabolic or hyperdynamic phase that Tanner talked about. This will affect what drugs we want to use. So during that ebb phase when the patient is in shock, it's better to use induction meds that are not going to tank the patient's blood pressure and cardiac function. So obviously, propofol is one of the main drugs that we give on induction that can drop the patient's blood pressure. 
So this would not be a very good drug to use during that initial shock phase if we're doing a surgery in the first 48 hours. Another drug that might be beneficial would be either Atomidate or Ketamine. Atomidate, while in theory you would think would be a great drug, we use it a lot in the ICU for intubations on hemodynamically unstable patients, at least in the ICU that I worked at. But the big thing with Atomidate is that it causes adrenal insufficiency. In critically ill patients, they already have adrenal insufficiency, as Tanner alluded to earlier. So this may not be the best drug to use. Ketamine may be a better choice due to the hemodynamic stability that it provides the patient. Plus, it also provides some pain control. So this is just something to keep in mind that propofol may not be the best choice in this phase for the patients. If you do use propofol, be very gentle with the dosing of it because it can dramatically decrease the BP in this phase if the BP is not already dropped to begin with. And if you are going to use it, it might be beneficial to use some phenylephrine with it. I know several times in patients that are hemodynamically unstable that I've used propofol, I pushed 100 micrograms of phenylephrine with the propofol just to prevent the patient from dropping more than they already are. Now, if you are already in the hypermetabolic phase, you can be more likely to use propofol without the risk of dropping that BP as dramatically. So keep in mind that it does matter what phase you're in for these procedures depending on what type of induction dosing and what type of induction drugs that you can use. So I talked about how we should not use depolarizing medications such as succinylcholine after 48 hours. Let's talk about non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. So we're going to need a lot more dosing for these patients of the non-depolarizing relaxants because one, they have lots of new fetal nicotinic acetylcholine receptors and a decreased comparative amount of adult type receptors, it's going to require more dosing of these non-depolarizers to block those receptors and keep the patient relaxed. Two, they're going to be making more carbon dioxide due to that hypermetabolic state if you're in that post 48 hour period. And so there's a higher metabolic demand and they're going to be trying to breathe over the vent and it takes a little bit more to get them fully relaxed and prevent them from trying to breathe over that vent. So keep in mind, they're going to be needing a higher dose of those non-depolarizers. Great. And one thing to add, when you want to think about your anesthetic plan, maybe you may consider using a regional anesthetic technique. This is not really all that popular simply because it's pretty difficult to have the right situation where a regional anesthetic is going to be beneficial for the patient, get enough coverage, and also be in an area where you're able to block in an area that is not burned, not affected, but then is going to block the affected extremity. This might be a consideration, say, if you have a burn that is just limited to the hand, or like Cole said, if you had a burn on a finger or two, then you may consider doing a regional anesthetic technique. It could be nice because it could decrease the amount of opioids that you would need, even if you did that in combination with a general anesthetic technique. A couple other things just to mention briefly before we wrap up this episode. When you think about your maintenance phase, you may want to consider trying to do a TIVA instead of using your inhalational agents. This is going to help with the hypotension that comes with giving our anesthetic gases if these patients are already at risk for hypotension due to the changes in fluid and that release of all those inflammatory mediators and things like that, you may want to consider doing a TIVA. Instead, that might be beneficial there for the patient's hemodynamics. 
think about ketamine. That might be helpful to maintain your blood pressure. You're going to want to keep a blood pressure that is going to keep your urine output about that 0.5 mil per kilo per hour. So nothing's really different there when comparing to other procedures. Some people will recommend having a CVP. This is helpful, again, to monitor that fluid status. I know we talked earlier that you can look at your pulse pressure variation and things like that to monitor for hypovolemia as well. But again, this might not be out of the question to place a central line and monitor that CVP just to keep a good close eye on the patient's fluid status. Last thing I want to touch on is blood loss. You should estimate that for every 1% of the burn that is going to be excised that you can lose 200 mils of blood. This is quite a bit of blood loss for what could really be a very small amount of burn that is going to be excised. So that's important that you're aware of what the picture is going to look like, have clear communication with the surgeon as you're doing your timeout so you can plan on your anesthetic technique, what you're going to need to do as far as fluid management, blood loss replacement, things like that. Try to get ahead of that because like I said, this could be very significant even for very small amounts that are going to be operated on. Instead of just using crystalloids, this is the same rule that you'll use in your other procedures as well. But if you're losing a lot of blood, then you don't want to just be continuously replacing with crystalloids. Remember, crystalloids will replace three to one. Your colloids will be replaced one to one. So think about moving into your colloids. You can give red blood cells, FFP at a one to one ratio. You need to understand that if you're doing a rapid transfusion, so if you've lost a lot of blood and you're giving a lot of units, make sure that you're paying attention to your calcium. We touched on this on some other episodes. Remember that citrate in the blood is going to basically eat up that calcium. And so it's very important that you are monitoring the calcium, that you're also giving calcium in those massive transfusions so that you don't have cardiac arrhythmias and other issues arising from hypocalcemia. We hope that this is a helpful episode for you. Like Cole mentioned at the very beginning, this might not be something that you are very familiar with depending on where you practice. There's some very key principles that you need to keep in mind as you manage these patients. Hopefully this makes that a little bit clearer and you can confidently go into these cases knowing that you can carefully and appropriately manage these patients with burn injuries. 